Well, thank you, Nate and band, and thank you for braving the elements and coming to church today. I'm Pastor Joey, and it's a privilege to welcome you here. And thank you so much for being a part of our our weekends through December. It's a blessing, and you have been a blessing. Thank you so much for being here last week. Um, you guys were so awesome last week. And um, I'm not sure exactly what all was accomplished in having Levi speak to you, but I know there was, it was a spiritual victory of some sort. And you were a part of that. And thank you so much for being here to um, cheer him on. I mean, you stayed with him. Um, I sat on the front row, and I don't often get to do that, but I was just cheering for him all the way. And, um, and I don't, I mean, I think you guys were pulling for him as well, and that meant a lot to him and to me. And uh, so thank you so much. It was great to also have our family here. And um, I think you even got to hear my granddaughter say papa once so that's pretty special and I think I kind of just did that all week we sit down to eat what's my name who is that papa papa and opening presents who is that papa so it's just kind of interesting to to be able to hear her say that in real time and not just in face, video FaceTime or whatever but um, you know I was thinking about who you are if I point at you and I say who are you who is that who is that? Who is that? Right? How might God answer that question? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that because we have to because we're in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a book that deals with our identity, the who am I question. Paul seems obsessed with answering that question. And so he... he um, in the first couple of chapters really hits it hard in terms of who we are in Christ. But if we were to look at our passage today of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and if we look especially at verse 10, if I were to ask you, if, if I were to say, who is that? And if you would pull up verse 10 for me, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, God would answer, and I can answer based on what Paul has written here, that you are God's poem. You are God's handiwork, is the NIV translation of the word poema, which means poem. You are God's poem. You are God's poetry. You are God's unique work that he is working in your life to shape you and to use the contours, the rhythms and rhymes, uh, the ebbs and flows, the, all of the different details of your life. God is writing poetry about that. He is constructing this work of art. And he wants to be so at work in your life that people are able to look at you and say, you know, there is God's poetry. There is God's poem at work in living flesh. You know, sometimes we see a work of art and we say, well, we hear maybe music and we say, well, that's Mozart or that's Handel's Messiah. Or maybe we see a work of art and we say that's a Da Vinci or that's a Picasso because of the unique characteristic of the artist. 
And so I think that, that what Paul was driving at is as he's, he's answering this who am I question and he's answering and he's, he's telling you who you are in Christ and he wants you to be living your life in such a way in this new identity such that people can look at your life and say, well, that's a, that is definitely someone who has been stamped with the value of Christ, with the identity of Christ. So you are God's poem and um, I don't know if that enhances I would think that would enhance how you see yourself I think that Paul would want you want to enhance how you see yourself and you know we're going to answer uh, in part the who am I question today at least uh, some aspects of that and I want to do it um, and out of this passage um, and so maybe what we'll do is let's go ahead and read the verses and get those in front of us. And then I think what we'll do is threefold mission here uh, today is to look at the contrast that sets up the ultimate question that I'm going to be asking you today on this first Sunday in 2021. Um, so we're going to be looking at the contrast. So as we read through these 10 verses, I want you to pay attention to the contrast. And then don't worry if you don't get them all situated in your head because I'm going to have it on the screen in just a second. I'm going to show you in kind of a contrast chart and how we see this and what question it provokes. And the second thing I'd like to accomplish is that we'll, we'll work our way through these verses to clarify the who am I question. Because when we talk about who am I question, we've got to talk about sin a little bit because we are fallen. We're made in the image of God for sure, but we are sinners. Yes, we are. But we're redeemed sinners, and we have a new identity in Christ. And so we've got to talk a little bit about that. We've got to talk a little bit about who we are in Christ, what he has destined and predestined for us to do and accomplish. So we're going to look, pick through our way through some of the verses. And then finally, um, we want to look at some questions that Paul answers that we all need answered. And we don't realize, realize what he's done until we've actually worked through the verses. Um, questions that we all ponder uh, who can I trust um, who am I who wants me why am I alive what do I do well these are all questions that pertain to our identity and Paul answers all of them in these short ten verses he actually answers them throughout the book of Ephesians especially the first three chapters but he especially answers them in these ten verses so we're going to look at a contrast, uh, we're going to look at um, the verses here in the text, and we're going to look at some of these, these five questions that everybody needs answered if you're going to thrive in life. Um, so let's go back to verse 1 of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, in fact, as we read through this, uh, go ahead and go back up one more slide, slide number two, if you would. Uh, this, this passage breaks down into a very clear and distinct threefold outline. Um, what we were is verses one through three, and what we are is the focus of verses four through six, and what we shall be is the focus of verses seven through ten. So I like how it lays out that way. And um, when, we ask the, when we deal with the topic of what we were, what we were, verses 1 through 3, the question we have is, are we really this bad? And the answer is, unfortunately, I have to say yes. 
we are this bad. You'll see it in a second. Uh, what we were, or what we are, is God really this good? And yes, fortunately, I can answer, yes, he is this good. He's an incredible God who writes poetry with the crappy stuff that we do to mess our lives up. Only God could do that. Okay, and so, and then what we shall be is our future together really this bright, and it is so gloriously bright because God writes great poetry when we surrender our life to him. So we read uh, with this in mind <coughs> what we were, what we are, and what we shall be. Verse 1 of chapter 2, verse, verse 1 and on the, on the screen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like, like the rest. We were by nature, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And a lot of people have a problem with that phrase in Ephesians. But, great contrast verse 4 but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you have been saved and so he just this parenthetical interjection here he doesn't talk about how you've been saved by grace yet until verse 8 and 9 but he can't wait to get there so he just interjects it here it is by grace you have been saved. He's going to get there in verse 8. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Next slide. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. There it is. He finally gets to verse 8. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, his poetry. We are God's poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we go to verse uh, slide number five, if you would for me. Slide number five, I don't know if you recognized it on our first pass through, the first reading through this passage, but the, Paul, the writer here, presents to us a series of contrasts. And what he does for us, and I've kind of simplified the contrast here on this first slide, we could say the old life is dead and the new life we're alive. And in the old life, Paul says, basically, we, have, we are characterized by transgressions and sins, in the new life, God works, we have good works prepared by God for us to do. In the old life, this, this world is our identity. In the new life, there's heavenly realms. In the old life, there's death. New life, there's life. There's a sinful nature that dominates our life. In the old life, the union with Christ dominates our life in, in a new life. There's wrath and judgment, the focus of the old life. Mercy and salvation in the new life. We're under a ruler in the old life. We're seated with Christ in the new life 
by nature we live our life and it's a sinful nature but we live by grace in the new life it's not from works okay in the old life it is in the new life we are alive through faith if we go to the next slide we could set it up this way maybe a little more simple and easy for us to understand in the old life we were dead now we are alive we were enslaved now we are enthroned we were objects of wrath now we are objects of grace we walked among the disobedient now we fellowship with Christ we were under Satan's dominion now we are in union with Christ next slide it begs the question are you dead or alive that's the question are you dead or alive and see Paul wants you and all oh, when I read this passage it's like oh God I want that kind of life I want to be fully alive in Christ and so Paul presents to us here what God has done in behalf of a sinful humanity and the contrast that he sets us up with in these verses. And you don't see it unless you do it, kind of tease it out like I have done and put it up on the screen for you to see. He's working these contrasts back and forth through the passage and he wants to bring you to that place where you are fully immersed in the life of God and the way you're fully immersed in the life of God is to open your life up to this great invitation of what God has done for the world and he wants to do in and through you and the way that you come to life is to open your life up to this new invasive kind of life that takes you from a place of spiritual deadness to spiritual life and so the question is are you dead or are you alive very important question for 2021 I want to move us all to a place of life if that's where we need to move. To, to move from death to life. And so the contrast Paul sets us up with here is, in fact, it begs the question. And this is the question that it asks. Are you dead or are you alive? Are you dead or alive? And he wants you to be alive. The second thing I think we need to look at, or we gotta, we, we need to kind of pick our way through these verses a little more slowly, so we can kind of see what Paul is, is focusing on. And so the focus of the text is identity and who we are and who God is, and we see these um, in the passage. And so if we go to Ephesians chapter two, verse one again, if we would, if we would pull that up. And we slow ourselves down a little bit and we read through this. As for you, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And I want you to notice that it says you are dead in trespasses and sins, not other people. You were dead. The point in the Bible is that there's primarily, there are no categories in the Bible of good people and bad people. There's no um, hard and fast categories of religious people and irreligious people. It's not primitive people and advanced people. It's not educated people and backwards people. Essentially what we have in the Bible is that it is sinful people and Jesus. That's what you've got. And so 
when we look at the Bible's diagnosis of our condition, um, it's just sinful people and Jesus. And the biblical diagnosis of fallen man is that um, we are fallen and, and all of society is fallen everywhere. And so the question is, what does this spiritual death look like? Well, we're born with a sin nature. And we are alienated from the life of God. That's what it means to be in transgressions and sins. And this is where we would remain if it were not for the power of Christ. This deadness, even though it is our default setting, um, and we are born with a spiritual birth defect, as it were, and all of us, we start out with a, with a bias toward evil, with a will that's under a certain amount of bondage under the dominion of Satan. And Paul seems to understand this. And we have lust and evil desires waiting for an opportunity to demonstrate themselves. And if it were not for the miraculous grace and love of God, we would remain in that state. But God's done something great in the gospel. You know, when we look at how Paul says this, he says we are in our trespasses and sins what one scholar would call a locative of sphere what does that mean he's talking about a sphere in which we live notice Paul does not say on the screen he does not say that you are dead in because of your transgressions and sins no he says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It is a location. It is a position. And a few weeks ago, I talked to you about how we are in Christ. And because of this in Christ status, this new collective uh, corporate status that we have in Christ, because of this status, we are elect and we are chosen in Him. He is the one that's elect and we are chosen in Him when we open our life up to Christ. And so this is the opposite of that. And so we are in trespasses and sins. It's a position in which we stand. And according to Paul's spheres of influence, the spheres of influence theology, people either live in sin and under its influence or they live in Christ and under his influence. So it's a question of serving the tyrant sin or the Lord Christ. And when we serve the tyrant of sin, Paul would describe us as being dead in trespasses and sins. We are under the influence of this default setting that we have been born with. Or are we alive in Christ? We are in Christ now and we have the life of God that's been interjected into the deadness and we've been raised and we've been uh, raised up and we're seated with Christ in him. And so that's the, this contrast that Paul has set up. And again, it, it, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, have, has my life been infused with this divine life that Jesus speaks over humanity and that he invites us all to open up and allow him in? I think that when people deal with this passage, I'm of the opinion that they press the death metaphor too far when they say things like dead people can't respond to God ever. No, no, there's a prevenient grace. 
that God has released over the world through the gospel. This grace has been released. And it's not that we can't respond to God. It's that we won't respond to God like we should. And so we're dead in sins. And it does not imply that as unbelievers that we can do no good in life because we operate in this fear that we cannot and that we cannot respond to a message of salvation through God's initiating grace, of course we can respond. So instead of alive in Christ as a new position before God, Paul says in verse 1, we are dead in sins. We are our default born position is that we're in the sphere of death and sin and rebellion and it will take God's grace in our willing heart to receive him in order to be delivered from it there is this default position of I'm going to do life my way and Paul says in which verse 2 we used to live there notice the past tense we used to live verse 3 he talks about at one time this was your life when you followed the ways of the world wandering aimlessly along browsing the world going with the flow doing what everybody else was doing parroting what everybody else was saying being like everybody else this was the way that we used to live outside of Christ and not only were we wandering aimlessly along but there's the there is, there is the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Paul says, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All right. There is a person at work behind what we see happening in our world. And not only are we born in a default position of rebellion and of sin, but there's also an alien presence in the world that is endeavoring to um, cause us to live a life of disobedience. You know, when I think of, talk about someone following Satan or being filled with Satan, you get the image of a guy maybe with a bunch of tattoos out in the woods sacrificing animals, right? But what this verse tells us is that Satan is not so much in the sacrifices out in the woods doing crazy things. But he works behind the scenes in the spirit of our age. Such that he takes the good gifts of money and twists it and turns us into materialists. Or he takes sex as beautiful as that is and he gives it a twist and makes it... We, 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 uh, we are dominated by this gift from God and we don't express it in a way that he's intended he takes power and twists it and makes it our everything and so this when we talk about the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient it's not as if we're a bunch of satan worshipers in the woods somewhere doing crazy rituals it's not as if we're sacrificing animals at midnight in the woods it's no no it's much more it's much more subversive and much more um, camouflaged than that in our life living for things like money and sex or power and we live this way these become our pseudo gods and it causes us to turn inward and the cravings of the flesh verse 3 there's the kingdom of the air verse 2 and there's the fallenness of our nature verse 1 and we have this addictive triple bondage and we're caught up in this 
and we can't break free unless there is an invasive force that comes into our life and reveals these things and shows us. And, and so I think we see what Paul was doing. He's taking us behind the facades of our culture, behind the facades of our life, and he's tearing off the veil, and he's revealing to us what is really there. And he says that there is an organized realm of malevolent malevolent beings in our world headed by a ruler of incredible subtlety and power who is at work behind the world scene to create disobedience in our life so when we answer the question who am I we have to answer it very honestly and very soberly we have to answer it with what in light of what Paul has written here and we have to answer it honestly in light of what the Bible teaches and that we are we lived among them verse 3 we lived among them at one time, he says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Cravings and desires, distorting what God has given and subverting them and, and producing an irrational self-centeredness in our life. And Paul says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Why does he say it that way? You know, I doubt there's more objectionable phrase than that phrase right there in verse 3, that we were by nature deserving of wrath. A lot of people object to that. Progressive Christianity is so dangerous. And it suggests that a God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. And Paul says, no way. No, part of the who am I question is we got to understand, yes, we were created by God. Yes, we're capable of a lot of great things, but we are fallen people. We are born with a default setting of to do life our way, to turn in on ourselves and to make ourselves the arbiter of what is good, what is right, what is wrong, that we become our little God. And Paul says we're deserving of wrath. We're deserving of, uh, of, we stand under this sense of condemnation because we have dethroned, we have committed cosmic treason, we have kicked God off the throne, we have put him ourselves there in his place, we've minimized him, we've glorified ourselves, we refuse to serve him. We serve instead ourselves. We exploited the creation for our purposes, not his. And we have allowed our lives to be controlled by our cravings, by our desires of our body and our minds. Our body says, I have sex, and so we obey it. Our body says, spend a bunch of money on me, and we obey it. Our body says, live a life of luxury, no matter how stingy you have to be or who you have to hurt, and we, o we obey it. This is a human plight. It's a human condition that there is no hope from outside of the gospel. Who am I? I am alienated from God. I will do life my way. I will obey the impulses of my nature. And I will live life and construct the life I want to construct and live. 
And we all have this. You know, I thought it was interesting this uh, week that, you know, or last week, um, talking about the little Eliza Lee, precious little Eliza Lee, okay, saying Papa up here on the stage. We get home, we're doing lunch. She decides she's going to stand up in her high chair. Anybody anybody else have a kid that decided they're going to stand up in a high chair? Yep. Eliza, you better not do that. She gets a stern look, and up she goes. She's standing up in her high chair, okay, because that's what she decides she's going to do. All right? That's us, isn't it? That's what we do. We, um, we have this setting, this default setting in us that says, you know what, I don't have to do whatever source of authority in my life say I have to do. Paul says, this is us. This is our condition. And he says that we are, we are deserving of wrath. Okay? What does he mean? Well, wrath is just the steady disposition of God toward all that is against his holiness and his righteousness and his purity. That's what wrath is. It is not like man's wrath where he flies off the handle or it's not based on revenge or animosity. It's God who is, because of his totally otherness, his holiness, he stands against all that sabotages good and right in the world. And when we refuse his covering for against this wrath, when we re, when we refuse his got his provided covering for this, we stand in in with this wrath, and we suffer the consequences of this wrath. Paul says we are deserving of this wrath because we have again we have committed this cosmic treason. You know. Um, some people don't buy what I'm saying. I understand that. Some people in the world would say, you know, some, I don't accept that we have a sinful nature. I don't accept that. Are we really this bad, Pastor? On slide number 12, I think it is. It's the bicyclist. Uh, yeah, there we go. The two American bicyclists from Washington, D.C. quit their jobs to bike around the globe. And this couple, Jay Austin and Lauren uh, I'm not going to pronounce their last name. Uh, I'm probably going to mess it up. But Austin and Lauren, both of them 29, had been on the road for just over a year. And Jay and Lauren, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. They took a year-long bike trip around the world. And they wrote, he wrote in his blog that he believed that evil was just a make-believe concept in the world. While in Morocco, Jay, he's a tiny house innovator guy, and he wrote on his travel blog, you know, we're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People are not to be trusted. People are bad, evil, axe murderers, monsters are worse. I don't buy it, he wrote. Evil is a make-believe concept. We've invented this concept to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. 
By and large, humans are kind, he says. Generous, wonderful, and kind. No greater revelation has come from our journey around the world as we bicycled the globe than this insight. No such thing as evil. We construct it. Sometime after that blog entry, and because of this belief, they rode their bikes through the terrorist territory of Tajikistan in summer of 2018. And five men connected with ISIS stabbed the bicyclists and two of their friends to death. Humanity is fallen and infected with the sin nature. The state of that deadness and decay will vary depending on how much you yield to this depravity. But we're all afflicted with it. We're born with this. We cannot genetically engineer it out of the human species. This is our default position. And God sees this position. He understands it. And he decides to do something about it. The Bible and the gospel is not primarily about what we do. It's about what God has done despite what we've done and who we've become. And so when we answer the question, who am I? And we start coming up with all these ways we're going to self-identify. And we're going to be this and we're going to be that. And this will be my group. This will be my identity. And this is how I'm going to roll and the people I'm going to roll with. When you start answering that question, you construct these self-identities You have to factor in what Paul says. I don't care what you want to call yourself, who you're going to identify with. You are fallen. I am fallen. And when we recognize this, and maybe you're asked, well, well, pastor, what am I supposed to do about the fact that I'm dead in sin? That this is my default position? It's very simple. Are you unhappy with the idea? Does it disturb you? Are you alarmed by the idea? Do you suddenly begin to say, well, I I want the kind of, I want to be spiritually alive. I, I want God to interject his life in my fallen human nature such that his work of grace, his power to cleanse and to, and to purify my heart, my disposition toward rebellion, I want him to interject himself in my life and to speak life over this deadness within. I want him to step into my graveyard and usher me into a brand new light of day, a new beginning. And when you start thinking that and you start feeling that, then Paul would say you're not dead anymore. You're being invited and you're sensing the invitation into a higher form of life. It's it's being spiritually alive before God where you have this new awareness that you didn't have before. When you're born again, something gets hold of you in the center and God comes in and he plants a new principle of life in all of this deadness, in all of this this, um, graveyard habits and this graveyard lifestyle. He comes into that And he plants a new principle of life and he pulls you up from a lower form of life into a higher form of life. 
and it's beautiful. And the way Paul says it is, if we go back to verse 4 on the screen, he says, but because this is what we were, but this is what we are now, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, so God takes the initiative and he gives us these, and really it's the main verbs coming up in verse 5, how God makes us alive. He raises us up. He seats us with Christ. Verse 5, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, even when we were in a positional stance of rebellion against God with this default setting of cosmic treason built into our DNA of who we are, God is rich in mercy, makes us alive. He speaks over us a new identity with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. It is no merit of your own. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, Paul says. The Christian life, I think it's interesting, it does not begin with all the doing, the doing, the doing. It begins with the sitting, the sitting, the sitting, and having the positional truth of what Christ has done for you. Wash over you. And the fact that you are seated with him is the fact that it's a sign of completion. It is done. It is done. You, you are secure in him. You cannot be in a higher place in heaven, closer to God, than when you are seated with Christ. I'm in Jesus' seat now. In other words, salvation is already accomplished. It's already mine. I'm no longer under the power and dominion of the devil. I've come under a new protection. I've come under a protective eye. He cares for me. He sealed me. He has saved me from my plight from my rebellion and not only that but he's given me a future so not only what we were what we are presently seated with Christ but now what we shall be verse 7 in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus you're part of a great exhibition for as by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is God's freedom to do for you based on the work of Christ. All that needs to be done for you to have new life. Grace is God being freed up to express his kindness to you because he dealt with the problem that keeps him from doing so. And he did it of his own initiative. So when you were saved as a, a problem needed to be dealt with, and that is sin and this default position of rebellion, and God is perfect and therefore does not have the freedom to let you experience him at the greatest possible levels in your current status and condition. And so what he does through the death of Christ, he addresses this problem. He frees himself up to manifest to you his grace. And if you are saved, it is because God woke you up through Christ. He restored you to your senses. He strengthened you to believe. And he waits for the world to say, I'm ready for you to raise me from the spiritual dead and transform my sinful nature. And he's happy to do so for a life that will open up and let him come in. It's in light of all these things 
that Paul says, in light of all of this, you are God's poem. I'm God's poem. Yes, you're God's poem. You are his handiwork. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when you, are, when you open up your life for God to flood it with his presence, he recreates you as his workmanship, and, and it means he, he puts his heart and his desires into you. And you become his, his poetry. God loves to write poetry about you. Maybe nobody ever told you you were a masterpiece. You were told maybe that maybe you're not very smart or maybe you're ignorant or, or maybe you're never going to amount to anything or you were told you were never going to make anything of yourself. You were told that you were maybe the wrong race or the wrong gender or the wrong height or the wrong, born in the wrong place, born part of a wrong family. God looks at you staggeringly. God looks at you so staggeringly great that he's sitting up writing poems about your life and what he wants to do with your life. And he says, you are my poetry. You are my poem. You know, um, on slide, I think it's 14, Jeff Little talks about the who am I question and so again based on what Paul has written here when we talk about who am I we have to understand that we are we are made in his image but we are fallen and yet his image is defaced but not erased we have the capability of saying yes to him and what he's done and his provision that we are definitely definitely seated in Christ and that impacts our identity and who we are to um, live for and how his identity is fleshed out in our life by virtue of the fact we're seated with him. And we definitely have a lot of hope as to what he will do in a life that's thus yielded. Jeff Little talks about this who am I question in his book. And he talks about having four children at home and ages 6 to 17 at least at the point when he was writing the book and he said that the other day he was driving down the road with his six-year-old daughter Lainey Kate and she said out of the blue you know I love you daddy and he said that touched me and and after he told her how much he loved her he countered with this he says you know you love me Lainey I understand that but one day he says you're gonna fall in love with a hairy-legged boy and leave me Ooh, that's gross, Dad. I'll never leave you, she says from the back seat. He says, I was just laughing in the front seat, and she was gushing in the back seat over her dad. But he wanted to press it a little bit more. He says, you know, you're going to bring him home and tell me you want to marry him, and you guys are going to move away, and I won't ever see you anymore. And he just builds this manipulative case in her little brain. Okay, he's just playing this out, wanting to see what she'll say. And, and he said she thought, and then she said, 
and he said I wasn't really ready for her response she says no dad I won't move away we'll just move in with you <laughs> Jeff Little said because of his three daughters that he spent way more time than he ever thought he would with the Disney princesses anybody else relate to that you know it's Disney everything it's not just pajamas and t-shirts and a few toys it's toothbrushes and cereal bowls and coloring books and toy phones and scooters and soccer balls and maybe you have your share of Disney paraphernalia right that you have in your home if you especially if you've got those little girls and he said I was thinking one day about all the actual stories that were behind all the merchandise Cinderella, Snow White, Ariel, Jasmine, Belle, Frozen, you know, the basic story is almost always the same. They face a crisis of identity. They've forgotten who they are. And they're being held back from the true destiny that they've been called to. And they break out into a song about this deep longing to be part of something bigger and more beautiful than they've ever known. And finally, what the prince finds them, or they find the prince, and it all wraps up with a wedding celebration. They overcome the witch or evil magician and find love and fulfillment and purpose. I think that's what Paul's kind of got in mind here. You see, we forget who we were. In fact, we're kind of born into the middle of a story that we're not sure how it started and how we got here. But we're born into a story, and what Paul does, he kind of opens, he pulls back the veil. He addresses who we are really, who we are really. And he talks about the ruler, verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He talks about this invasive presence that seeks to entice us away from our true creator God that loves us. And we wrestle with this and we're caught up in the, in, in the life of transgressions and sins. And, and we follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the cravings of our flesh. And we make this our everything. Our desires and thoughts are to our own way. But then Paul writes about a love. And he sings this song over us. That all the conflict in your life, all the identity changes and phases of your life, there's been one true identity spoken over you. And that identity is the one that Paul speaks over us here in this passage. You know, as I um, looked at this passage and I think about the five questions that we all wrestle with and that we need answered, what I see Paul doing here is that he, in fact, has answered these key questions. And in fact, we must often remind people in our life of who God says they are. 
And Paul is endeavoring to do that because we'll always need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And, and we will never outgrow this. We need to be reminded of it often, whether we pray identity prayers over people or we speak this new identity over them. And, and, and in the process of speaking this identity and this validation over our life, this new identity, this new hope, this, this new reason for living in the process of speaking that over us. Paul answers some very important questions for us. And maybe they're questions that you have today. Who can I trust in 2021? You know, that's a security question. There's false voices out there that will tell you to live for the ways of this world, the ruler, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are, who are disobedient. That's the false voice. Paul writes about a truer voice. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been rescued. You have been rescued from your plight. And so who do you trust today? There's lots of voices. Your peers will stamp you with an identity. Maybe there's marketers and movies and educators who will tell you who you are and, and sell you a story about the world. Maybe even parents who really didn't love or care for you. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan's strategy is to keep you focused on the worst version of you. Your lowest moments stuck in shame. Your greatest failures, the most painful mistakes you've ever made. His plan is to keep you locked in on those phrases. His plan is to keep you there forever, to convince you the deepest part of who you are is what has happened in those low moments when we obey the cravings of the flesh. And he hisses, that's all you're ever going to be. That's who you'll always be. There's a truer voice that comes into that. And Paul writes about it here. And this voice says, you are loved by God. You have been forgiven by God. He has done all that's necessary for you to have intimacy with him. There is security in this truth. You can move through life with a quiet confidence and trust. You don't have to be restless. You can trust and know that you're safe. Paul answers, who can I trust? He answers the question. Well, who am I? Paul says you're raised up with Christ, verse 6. You're seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we struggle, you know, who am I now that my marriage is over? Who am I now that my kids are grown up and gone? Who am I that maybe I have a successful company now in business or who am I that that maybe I have moved and have a new job and a whole new set of friends who am I and is there someone that can identify me beyond the phases of my life and Paul would say to jump into who God says we are he died Jesus died so you could be stamped with his as his own and he answers the question you know what? You're not just a sinner anymore. You are redeemed and you're seated with Christ. Who can I trust? 
Who am I? Who wants me? That's a belonging question. God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ because of his great love for us. Who do you belong to? There's a someone who knows you better than you know you. There's security in who you belong to. I think most people respond to insecurity in one of two ways. We respond through pride and we respond through rejection. Pride says, I'll show you. I'm good enough. I'll prove I'm the best. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I'll do what I want. I'll rub it in your face. That's how pride talks. Rejection says, I can't do this. I'll never be good enough. I'm going to let you down. When people need me the most, I drop the ball. Just stay away from me. Both pride and rejection are expressions of insecurity, whether you're prideful, whether you come at it from a sense of self-hatred or rejection. The gospel steps into your life and says, I love you. God says, I want you. I'm writing poetry over your life. I want you to take this identity from me now. I want you to be stamped as my own. But why am I alive? Well, Paul answers it. We're not just alive to gratify the cravings of our flesh, verse 3, or to follow its desires and thoughts, verse 3. No, rather, in the coming ages, he says in verse 7, he might show the incomplete riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus And so it's hard to be this when we replay the same old lines from our previous life. You're damaged goods, right? God no longer sees any value in you. He has no plans for you. You missed your chance. God has moved on. You'll never be trusted again. One author talks about how we we can't meet our need for purpose in the dangerous peas of life power and position and pleasure possessions popularity pursuits it's the dangerous peas of life Paul would say there's a there's a one letter of the alphabet you got to get right and that's the letter G when you answer the question why am I alive to glorify your God to lift him up and what he has done we must go from I must do this to be good to I want to do this because God is good and when we make that transition we know why we're alive well what do I do well well Paul censors that question as well for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When God steps into our life, he rebuffs the way we typically think about our life and what we do in life. We go from I messed up, so many times we go from I messed up to, to, we go from I messed up to I am messed up. 
We go from I failed to I am a failure. We go from I made a mistake to I am a mistake. And we try to start living from those statements from our old life. And Paul says, you have been now created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Because we are God's poetry now. And whatever we do, we can do well and turn into ministry because of what he's done in and through our life. And so we've talked about it today. We've talked about the contrast. Are you dead or are you alive? We've talked about the verses. We've talked about the beauty. Even though it's a horrific condition in which we are in which we are born there's this incredible grace of God that's at work in our world and that when we open up our life to him he comes in and breathes new life and we've talked about the questions and I would ask you who are you trusting who are you who wants you why are you alive What do you do well and can you use it for the glory of God? These are all questions we all want to consider as we think about Paul and his truth, speaking his truth over us. Here in this incredible uh, 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for what you have done for all of us in the great rescue mission in our world. We understand that you burn against all unrighteousness. We understand that. And that when we refuse your provision, that your wrath your steady commitment to deal with that which sabotages a good creation. Your steady resolve to confront the unrighteousness of the world. That we stand with that outside of Christ. And we don't want to stand in that condition. We come to you today for your great redemption for your great grace we come to you today and we pray Lord that you would infuse us with your new life as we approach this another year thank you for answering our deepest questions about ourselves and we are not just a sinner anymore we're a believer in Jesus seated with Jesus who maybe struggles with areas of life but you have done the work that allows us to be new and to approach life from a brand new identity. And so I ask and pray this day that in all of our hearts there would be a shift and we would open ourselves up for your new life, your divine life. And even though we have this tendency to take the graveyard habits into the resurrection phase of our life in the new life in Christ that we have we understand that if we have any hope 
of living out this new life it starts with who you says we who you say that we are so thank you for proclaiming over us a new identity thank you for answering the who am i question thank you for loving us thank you for reaching us thank you for guiding us thank you for bringing us to this place and so i ask and pray in jesus name that we would walk from this place in this new life this new a way to see life that would we would dethrone the idol of ourselves and we would enthrone you and we would lay down our arms and cease to fight you but to love you and walk with you we ask all these things in your strong name amen I want to thank you for being here this morning thank you so much would you stand with me Thank you. We'll we'll continue next week in the book of Ephesians. Blessings to you. Go in his grace and his peace. Have a great day.